0: Well, happy Reformation Sunday. (laughs) Okay, you didn't know it was Reformation Sunday, all right? We don't talk about that a lot in Baptist circles. We don't necessarily talk about that, although there are a lot of groups that, that the last the Sunday in October, they they always uh, focus on and celebrate Reformation Sunday, a reminder of that, that pivotal event on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years ago, and that's why many of us are really kind of focused on it even more so this year, 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door, not knowing uh, that he was like kind of igniting a spark that would uh, kind of engulf Europe and in some sense the world in this flame that would be called the Reformation or the Protestant Reformation that you and I are products of today, that we're gathered here in this setting is a product of what took place, what God did out of that Reformation time. Many folks are are reflecting on and remembering the Reformation at this 500-year anniversary, and there are a lot of different ways to do that. As we thought about how do we kind of recognize and celebrate and focus on that, for us it seemed to make the most sense to focus on five statements, five slogans, five solas. Those come from from the Latin phrases that emerged uh, during or right after this uh, Reformation period that kind of encapsulated the core teachings of the gospel message, the core teachings of of the the Reformation, of, of Scripture itself. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone, we looked at that last week, kind of that foundational piece along the way. Next week, we're going to look at the sola gratia, grace alone. And then uh, solus Christus, through Christ alone. And sola die gloria, through God's glory alone. But this morning, I want us to focus on the second of those five, and that is sola fide, or faith alone. Alone, faith alone. And as we think about this, this sola who really kind of centers around one central question. And the question is this: how does one receive the grace of God into our lives. How does God's grace, if you will, become operative, become alive in the life of an individual? And this became kind of a real, a real dividing line in the Reformation, uh, whether it was f- by faith or faith plus works. Now please hear this point of clarification because I want to make sure I'm dealing fairly throughout this series no official roman catholic dogma would say that people are saved by works you can read you can research nowhere will that official dogma ever say that they would say we are saved by grace but the challenge is how you define grace and how you receive that grace that that really becomes the issue in the, the the mindset that R- Luther and others were challenging was the view that grace is almost treated as a substance something that can be dispensed through the various avenues and means of the church particularly the sacraments and, and that you that they become kind of the means of saving grace a grace that improves you perfects you and moves you more and more toward the goal of salvation. And so it would begin very early on that you would experience an infant baptism. And the teaching is that that as that infant baptism, you would be infused with this sanctifying grace, that you would be infused with that through this act of of baptism. And basically you there would be this this relationship with God because you had been infused with this grace. And then all of these other sacraments were other ways that grace could kind of come into your life or if you got derailed the penance and confession could could get you back on track and we'll we'll talk about other aspects of that later. But it, it is this view that the reformation was in large part a protest against that justification we're going to talk more about justification next week justification how you're made right with god as a process in which you participate in the life of the church receiving grace so that as you take part in these sacraments as other things in the church you receive grace it is kind of dispensed into your life that way up against that would be the teachings of the New Testament, particularly verses like Ephesians 2, 8 and following. And these are perhaps familiar words to many of us in the room, but I want to invite you just to follow along as I read them aloud, and I want you to, to hear them anew and afresh today. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, here's the first one I want you to make sure you understand. Roman Catholic theology of that day and even to this day would say, oh, yes, we absolutely affirm that verse. For by grace you are saved through faith. But they would nuance it this way. You are saved through the faith, the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. So as you kind of connect to that whole system, then that grace is dispensed to you. Martin Luther and others, as they studied God's word, began to to realize that 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 is not how we are connected to, how we receive God's grace. It's not faith plus works, but it is grace through faith, faith and faith alone. But that raises an important question, because this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time, not not necessarily continually drawing distinctions, although we could certainly do that for a long, long time, but but to say, well, what is it that we truly believe? What is this this faith that stands alone as the, the way that we receive God's grace into our lives? Said another way, what constitutes true saving faith? What is it that makes up true saving faith and i want us to think about it in terms of three components they are certainly interrelated and connected and to have genuine saving faith you can't have just one or even two that all three need to be a part of that equation if you will that makeup of genuine saving faith the first component is uh well let's let's see what mark twain says about faith first faith is believing what you know ain't so right now that is some of you are saying, is that really what it is? No, no, that's not, that's not. But that is oftentimes how we talk about faith in our culture, right? We talk about blind faith. That faith is like make-believe, it's fantasy, it's believing something that you know isn't really true. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith has three components, and the first is a knowledge, a knowledge of the gospel. The Bible never calls us to a blind faith. It calls us to a faith that is informed by knowledge. It is not a blind faith, but we are invited to step into the light, the light of God's truth, the light of the gospel. And so genuine saving faith is not believing what you know ain't so, but it is building on what you know is so. And so it requires a knowledge of the gospel. And the gospel is throughout certainly the New Testament and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Genuine, saving faith begins with a knowledge of the gospel. You don't have to have a PhD in systematic theology, but it, it begins with a with a knowledge, a knowledge of what Jesus did for us that we could not do for ourselves. That that Jesus came and God in the flesh, and he he lived and walked among us, and he voluntarily, he according to the purposes of the Father, went to the cross to die in our place. He was buried and he was resurrected. And he rose again so that he could offer to us forgiveness of our sin, and that that resurrection was testified by. By many 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 people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ it's not believing in what you know ain't so but it starts with a knowledge of what actually took place what God did through Jesus Christ and so knowledge of the gospel is essential why do we want to take the gospel across the street and around the world because we know without a knowledge of the gospel there cannot be genuine saving faith. Why are there men and women who at this very moment are imprisoned, be, they would rather be in prison than stop sharing the gospel? Why are people losing their lives, literally being killed because they would rather put themselves in danger than not take the gospel somewhere? Because knowledge of the gospel is essential to saving faith. And so so we must carry forth the gospel but one very important aside knowledge alone is not saving faith knowledge alone is not saving faith you can have read the bible backwards and forwards you can have bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and doctoral degrees you could write books of bible knowledge and theology and not be genuinely saved because knowledge alone is not saving faith sometimes people slip into this knowledge equals faith it's a component of but not sufficient alone Knowledge alone is not saving faith. It needs two other components. And the second component we'll call intellectual assent. Intellectual assent, that there has to be not only a knowledge of this, but an agreement with this, that I not only know it, but I believe that it is true. I believe that it is true. So when John was putting together his gospel, he recognized he couldn't write everything that Jesus said and did, but he, he, he very specifically put some things in In there with a purpose. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That that it's not enough just to know about something, but that you have to uh, assent to it. You have to say, yes, this is true. There is an agreement. I recognize this. I affirm this to be true. What the Bible says about me and my condition, what the Bible says about my need for Jesus Christ is absolutely true, and so I not only have to know about it but i have to agree with it i have to have an intellectual assent but now another caution is in order here see sincerity does not guarantee saving faith sincerity alone does not guarantee saving faith that's why it is important to be coupled with knowledge of the truth what you believe has to be true it has to be true simple if goofy illustration perhaps Let's say that you, you, were, you were sick, sick enough that you required some type of medication, right? Now, you pick up this medication, whether it's over-the-counter or whether it's a prescription, and very sincerely, in all good faith, you take that medication, hoping it'll help heal you, right? You don't know who prepared it. You don't know who put it in the bottle. You don't know if the person giving it to you actually took it out of that bottle or switched it up. I mean, you've got a lot of faith components along the way, right? Now, if the medication is what it says it is and does what it says it's going to do, you're okay. But what if it's poison? (laughs) Does it really matter how sincerely you believed that was good medicine if it was a lethal dose of poison. No. No. See, there are folks that say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It absolutely matters what you believe. It absolutely matters. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It absolutely matters what you believe. Sincerity is important, but sincerity in and of itself does not guarantee saving faith. I have to have a knowledge of the gospel, and the gospel has to be true. That's what the resurrection is about, is an affirmation of everything Jesus said and taught and did. I have to intellectually assent to that. I have to believe that it is not only true kind of out there, but it is true about me and for me. But even those two components alone are not genuine saving faith. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, one of the things that I have discovered through the years is that there are people that have those two components and they think that's it. And they feel secure in their relationship with God because they have a knowledge of the gospel and they have an intellectual assent and an agreement with that knowledge. But there is a third vital component to genuine saving faith. And we can call that personal trust. Personal trust or active reliance. James, and we're gonna come back to James in a few moments, said, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. They've got good theology. But they don't have personal trust. You can know it and agree with it and not have it transform your life. At the beginning of John's gospel, we find these words But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God, Not just those who agreed with it, but they, there was a personal receiving of it. Yes, they, they had to believe things intellectually, but they had to receive it. And of course, one of the most beloved passages, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, not just believes about Him, but believes in Him, should not perish but have eternal Life. True saving faith in the end is belief in action. It's belief in action. It's believing that the gospel is true, but it is also active reliance or trust in Christ. Yes, I have to believe that the gospel is true, but I have to entrust myself to it. I have to actively rely on that. I have to come to that point when I realize my works are never going to be sufficient. My good deeds are never going to get it done. That I have to actively rely on and trust in the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let, let me try to talk about it this way. Sometimes I've used a chair to talk about it. Let me, this morning, talk about an airplane we have lots of pilots in the life of our church now let's say today you wanted to get from charlotte to los angeles and you did all sorts of research you've even gone online you've seen videos i mean you you know you know all the reasons why intellectually planes should fly right how it works you you had reservations how this kind of metal and all this stuff can get up and stay up in the air but you you kind of okay i'm beginning to understand it You've talked to other people who have flown all over the world safely. You have researched track records of your preferred airline and feel very comfortable. You personally know some pilots. You buy the ticket. You make your way through security. You get to the boarding gate. But is that going to take you from Charlotte to Los Angeles? No. No, it is not until you place your body in a seat on that plane and the door is shut and someone you don't know, you don't know who built the plane, (laughs) you don't know who's maintained the plane, you don't know who put the fuel in the plane, you don't know who's flying the plane, (laughs) but you're trusting that all of those people are going to get you from Charlotte to Los Angeles. You are actively relying on them. In some sense, that's what it looks like to trust in Christ. That I know the knowledge and I intellectually agree, but it doesn't become operative until I actively rely on Christ. I I give up. I'm not going to flap my wings and fly to L.A. It's not going to happen by my own effort. I have to actively rely on someone else. I actively rely on Jesus Christ. I entrust him with my past, with my present, with my future. And so Jesus offers an invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Notice the first phrase, come to me. It's an invitation to a relationship, not just come to a set of teachings, not just come to a philosophy, but come to me. Come to a relationship with me. Those who are weary of their labor, they're heavy laden, burdened by their spiritual bankruptcy, heavy laden, trying to save themselves by obedience to to the law, by trying to do more good deeds than bad deeds and on and on it goes take that weariness and come to him and take my yoke upon you scripture sometimes talks about the yoke of slavery some writings would talk about the yoke of the the Torah the invitation here is to is to join ourselves to, to 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 yoke ourselves in this relationship with Jesus Christ to follow him to learn from me and it is there in that relationship and that active reliance upon Him and that connectedness to Him that you find rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. So, true, genuine, saving faith, where say by grace through faith, that is, includes knowledge of the gospel. It includes an intellectual assent and agreement. This is true for me. It is true, it's true for me. And then an active reliance. God, I'm no longer going to rely on my own resources, my own good deeds, my own religion, but I am going to rely actively, completely, personally on the completed, finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Which raises then a couple of questions. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've read the Bible. And I hear what you're saying about faith, but, but there's also that word repentance in there, right? And what about repentance? Because sometimes people will say they'll argue back, well, you don't really believe that we're just saved by grace through faith because because you call people to, to repent. And Jesus did as well. You go to Mark's gospel and you see this first public proclamation of Jesus' teacher. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. What's the response? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. It was the message of the New Testament church. One example of that, Acts 20. Paul's talking about this testimony, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Is repentance an additional work? Is it a, an additional step uh, in addition to faith? No. So here, here's, the, here's what we need to make clear. Turning from sin and trusting in Christ are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. So if you have a coin, you don't say, well, well, here's heads, and then there's another another thing that you need is tails. No, heads and tails are both part of the same coin repentance and faith turning from sin and trusting in christ are two sides of the same coin so if you if you can kind of picture that if you will you're walking in this direction and maybe you're carrying this load of sin this load of guilt maybe you're carrying all these sense of obligations or things to do and you just there's weighted down and you come to that point And it's one motion. You, You lay that down, you turn from that, and you turn to Christ. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. It's one motion. Two sides of the same coin. It's not repentance and belief as if they're two different things, but they are two sides of the same coin i cannot turn from christ and not turn away from sin in order for me to turn to christ i must turn away from sin it's part of the same motion repentance is included in genuine saving faith turning from sin turning to christ that active reliance upon jesus christ which leads to the next question about this oh well let me let me add one more statement here cs lewis cs lewis put it this way to trust in him to trust in him of course means of course trying to do all that he says there would be no sense in saying you trusted in a person if you would not take his advice, and in this sometimes what we do this, this, is, this is where this this connection comes in. sometimes someone will say well well i, I 've trusted in Christ, I am actively relying on Christ, but i don 't do anything he says." Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, that's kind of like you paying somebody for medical advice or financial advice, and you go, and and you get all this information and all this, and somebody says, do you believe what they said is true? Absolutely. Do you trust in their character? Without a doubt. Are you doing what they said? No. (laughs) Why? Why? Why are you not? doing what they said because you're trusting in something else more than you're trusting in them maybe it's what your parents said or maybe it's what you're, the group you hang with says or maybe it's your own understanding but to say that you trust in them and don't do anything they say is ridiculous and so genuine faith is a turning it's a turning from trusting in myself and trusting in Jesus Christ. Repentance is a part of genuine saving faith, which leads to one more question, and that is the question of works. Well, what about works? And particularly one passage that we're going to look at right now in James, and and I'll be honest with you, Luther struggled with the book of James. He struggled with the book of James. And one of the reasons is some Roman Catholics who were arguing back toward Luther and others in that day would point to the book of the James and they would say, aha, aha, here are works. How can you teach by faith alone? Because right here in James, it says you've got to have works what is the relationship between works and genuine saving faith well let's look at the passage first of all James 2 17 so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead but someone will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder and not by faith alone bang right how in the world could anyone say the scripture teaches by grace through faith alone when they read that in the book of James well the key is to understand exactly what James is talking about he's talking about how our faith is lived out. And he uses Abraham as an example. Interestingly enough, Paul also used Abraham as an example. If you want to jot down in your notes, Romans 4, 3, Galatians 3, 6, they're both kind of drawing on Genesis 15, 6, and they're both drawing on the life of Abraham. But Paul is talking about Abraham is, it was was counted righteous because of his faith. It was his, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness now what 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 are they they using the same scripture what are they talking about they're talking again about kind of two sides of this same coin if you will Paul is talking about the faith that puts us in a right relationship with God James is talking about how that faith displays itself in our lives. So most particularly, James is talking about that episode where Abraham is willing to put Isaac, his son, the son of promise, on the altar. But before that ever came, you go back and read the context of that Genesis quote. Before he ever, before Isaac was even born... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't his action with Isaac that earned him a right standing with God. It was that he trusted God. And in in his placing, his, his active reliance upon God was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. It put him in that right standing with God. So that when the episode with Isaac came along, he was able to, he, he was willing to obey God in that not to pr- not to earn a right relationship because he already had right standing with God. And this was just a display of his active reliance upon God. Actually, as you continue to read the text, it also ended up being Pointing forward to the gospel because he didn't allow him to sacrifice Isaac on that altar, but instead Isaac was off the altar. There was a ram in the thicket. The ram was the substitute that was given on the altar and that pointed to Jesus Christ who would be the one who died in our place. So even in that instance, it was pointing forward to the completed work of Jesus Christ. So Paul's talking about this right standing with God by grace through faith faith he's using Abraham as the example and James is talking about how that displays itself how genuine active reliance shows up in the life of someone who is actively relying on Jesus Christ so let me try to put that together what about works works are the fruit of our salvation and not the root of our salvation works are the fruit of our salvation. If if we are genuinely transformed by grace through faith, knowledge, intellectual assent, active reliance upon God, turning from sin and turning to Jesus Christ, when we walk in that way, when that root is in our life, it will inevitably display itself through fruit in our life. The reformers talked about it this way. We are saved by faith alone But a faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But a faith that is genuinely saved is never alone. It always produces fruit. It always shows up. So let me go back to Ephesians 2. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The grace, the capacity for faith It's all a gift from God. But when that is secured, verse 10, what's the outgrowth of that? For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them good works inevitably flow from a right relationship with God that's why the reformers said we are saved by faith alone for by grace you are saved through faith but a faith that saves is never alone it is always 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 accompanied by good works a true faith always produces good works good works don't earn us God's forgiveness good works are the fruit of God's activity in our life the fruit of his grace in our life through faith Sometimes when I'm talking with folks about this, they're, they're, they'll struggle in, in kind of a couple of different ways. Sometimes some, somebody's trusting in an experience. Well, I, this, is, this is my life today, but years and years ago, I walked an aisle. Years and years ago, I was baptized. Years and years ago, I was confirmed. Years and years ago, I, I prayed this prayer. Wonderful. saved by grace through faith alone but a faith that saves is never alone and so the question is where is the active reliance of your life today listen i i i I can't tell i don't have the capacity to see somebody's heart You remember the old, uh, some of you too young probably even mess with this, I don't know. Some of us way back in ancient days went to like biology and chemistry classes and that sort of thing. And you had that like a little paper with pH stuff, right? And you stick it in, you pull it out, and it's like one color for one thing and one color for another, right? Sometimes I wished you had that for like salvation. You know, just put that thing on somebody's forehead and it's like saved. No, not saved, right? So you could just kind of really tell real easy there, right? I can't. God knows the heart. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. True faith always produces good works. If there is a root of genuine saving faith, there's always the display of fruit in a life. And if consistently over a period of time there's an absence of fruit that would be aligned with the activity of God in a life, then it gives pause that there needs to be a look at the root. I know we all go through seasons of drought. We all go through challenging times. Our growth is not always steady up and to the right. But if there's an absence of fruit, it may speak to the absence of roots because true faith always produces good works. Now, when it comes to this whole area of works, there are two errors to avoid. The first error is legalism. Legalism. Legalism was the error of the Pharisees. They continually added all these rules and all these regulations. Legalism kind of judges other people based on what we think is right and wrong. Extra biblical. I'm not talking about clear biblical teachings here. Legalism has this mindset that somehow if I do enough, I can earn God's love. I can earn God's forgiveness. I can earn God's grace. That is never what the scripture teaches. Legalism. Legalism. That's one error to avoid. The other area in the relationship between faith and works is the error we'll call license. License. License has this error that says, well, by grace, save through faith. And then it really doesn't matter at that point. Yeah, you're saved, and so it really doesn't matter. And actually, this is one of the, the the criticisms, one of the attacks on the reformers is you're teaching this. You're saved by grace through faith, and we'll talk about justification next week. And, and then it doesn't matter. People just live any way they want, and they they just they, they sin indiscriminately. It doesn't matter. No. Fruit and root. There's a connection. There's a connection. Nowhere does Scripture teach legalism or license what does scripture teach liberty liberty in genuine saving faith god gives us liberty he gives us liberty freedom from the penalty of sin He freed him from the power of sin and ultimately from the very presence of sin itself. That's the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ so that God frees me from this penalty of sin. I'm I'm progressively being freed from the power of sin so that more and more my life is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, not to earn his forgiveness, but as the fruit of his forgiveness and grace in my life. And eventually I'm going to be free from the very presence of sin itself by being with him by his grace through faith true faith always produces good works well let me try to bring this together with another story out of martin luther's life and maybe it'll help luther was an intelligent man i think he had finished bachelor's and master's degrees at age 13 he got them just as as quickly as university would allow 15, excuse me, 1505, his life took a dramatic turn. 21 years old. Luther was fighting his way through a severe thunderstorm on a road to effort. A bolt of lightning struck the ground near him. Help me, St. Anne, he screamed out as a good Catholic. And I will become a monk. (laughs) You ever made a deal like that with God? But Luther was high Scruples. So he fulfilled his vow. He gave away all his possessions and he entered into the monastic life. And Luther was extraordinarily successful as a monk. He plunged into prayer to fasting, to aesthetic practices, going without sleep, enduring bone-chilling cold without a blanket, flagellating himself. As the, he later commented, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. Though he sought by all these means to love God truly and fully, he found no hope and no consolation. He was increasingly terrified of the reality of the wrath of God. Increasingly confronted with the fact that no matter how much he did, it was never enough to make him righteous with the holy God. While this was all churning in his life, he was ordered to take his doctorate in Bible and become a professor at Wittenberg University. During lectures on the Psalms and a study of the book of Romans, not only in the Latin, but going back to the Greek he began to see a way through his dilemma. And a pivotal verse was Romans 1.17. It's been called the, the, the Reformation verse. Let me read it along with one sixteen because I, they certainly go together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith at last were luther's words meditating day and night by the mercy of god i began to understand that the righteousness of god is that through which the righteous live by a gift of god namely by faith here i felt as if i were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself though the gates that had been flung open On the heels of his new understanding came others. To Luther, the church was no longer an institution defined by apostolic succession. Instead, it was the community of those who had been given faith. Salvation came not by sacraments as such, but by faith. The idea that human beings had a spark of goodness enough to seek out God was not a foundation of his theology as he had been taught was, as his later would say only be taught by fools humility was no longer a virtue that earned grace but a necessary response to the gift of grace faith no longer consisted of assenting to the church's teachings but of trusting the promises of God and the merits of Christ and it wasn't long before the revolution in Luther's heart and mind Played itself out all across Europe and now across the world. And it is that revolution that we want you to experience. And part of our prayer for this morning has been, oh God, oh God, would you in grace, would you in mercy, would you would you visit some today with a genuine saving faith? Father, if there are some that are trusting in a baptism, trusting in a, in a, in a moment that has no bearing on their life, Father, let today be the day of genuine salvation. If there are folks, Father, that are here that, that have never put those pieces together, would you open their hearts and minds even as you opened up luther's heart and mind and so today i'm going to ask you i'm going to ask you just to be wide open to god and i'm not trying to get anybody to doubt a salvation but i want everyone to be assured assured of a saving relationship with god that only comes through faith in jesus christ in christ alone And so I want to bow heads, and I want to pray for you, and then I'm going to ask you to be still in the presence of God. Can we pray together? Oh, Father, how we thank you for your amazing grace. Father, we thank you that it comes to us by faith, and even the capacity for faith is a gift of grace from your hand. and Father, I pray today, Lord, as we've been praying now for, for days and weeks, Father, I, I pray that today, Father, would be a breakthrough day, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, that, that today you, you, would, you would speak to a heart, you would speak to a mind, you would speak to a life, Father, that today would be the day when someone turns, they turn turn from trusting in self they turn from trusting in in religion or trusting in good works or or whatever it may be or the fact that they're better than their neighbor father that today would be the day that they recognize spiritual bankruptcy before you and that their only hope is in christ and christ alone through faith and father let today be the day of genuine Saving faith. Father, today draw men and women, draw a student, draw a child, draw people to yourself. Lord I pray I pray for some that may have even a false sense of security today father I pray for a breakthrough Lord I pray that today you would you would help them to, to, to not just have have a mere intellectual uh, uh, belief or a uh, knowledge or uh, enough religion to be inoculated against the real thing but father today in grace you would break through and they would see not only the fruit of their life but father they would look deep to the root of their life and today would be the day that you taught Turn them from a false trust to a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, let today be the day of your salvation. And I'm just going to ask you right now just to be still for just a few moments more in this room in the presence of.